text is primarily going to be come from verse 5 and on, but I want to begin by reading from verse 1 and on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from, under, from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. And then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And before we look at a portion of the words that I've just read, let us pray for the help and the grace of God once again. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that we have this brief account of the majestic work of your creating power. And even though it doesn't reveal to us perhaps everything that our curiosity would like to know, you have told us, Lord, that which we need to know. And we pray, Lord, that that which you have told us, you would help us to understand and that we would respond to it in a way that is befitting your word, that we would believe it, that we would trust in you, that we would be shaped and formed by what we see and hear this morning. Draw near to us even now, we pray, by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the main themes that emerges out of the creation account that's given to us in the book of Genesis is the theme of order. At the very beginning, there's the theme of light, but then in the middle of the chapter, uh, first half of the chapter, I should say, the theme of order becomes very prominent. Our God is a God of order, and his creative handiwork displays a remarkable concern for order. And as God progressively introduced order into his creation, it was also progressively beautiful. That's why he says repeatedly that he saw that it was good, and the word sometimes is taken as it was beautiful in his eyes. And so again and again, he stops to admire what he's created and he notes especially its beauty and its goodness. And by way of contrast, the entrance of sin into the world brought about the opposite of order. It brought about chaos and disorder. And before the Genesis flood, we read, for instance, that the earth was corrupt before God and that it was filled with violence. And the more any society departs from God, the more it is characterized by chaos and disorder. You and I are living in an era in which this is increasingly becoming manifest. 
This past summer, our cities across the land were plunged into chaos. To many of us, seeing what was happening to our beloved nation night after night, if we were watching the news, it was exceedingly painful to see these cities going up in flames one after another. And seeing the businesses of hundreds of small business owners going up in smoke, their dreams forever gone perhaps, and seeing hundreds of looters streaming in and out of storms with their arms full of, of their stolen goods, this was a grievous sight. And what added to our consternation was the fact that, this wide, that there was this wide swath of politicians that seemed to refuse all summer long to condemn these riots because those that were rioting represented their political viewpoints. One politician, for instance, said that the plundering was a good form of reparations. And it was even more distressing to hear so many major news outlets dismiss this violence, calling it mostly peaceful. One prominent news commentator said, please show me where it says that protesters are supposed to be polite and peaceful. Well, thankfully, that was not the way everyone reported it. The mayor, for instance, of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, she spoke out, I think, very courageously and very passionately about the rioters in her city. And she said, I see what's happening on the streets of Atlanta. This is not Atlanta. This is not a protest. This is not in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. This is chaos. Now, with the George Floyd trial that's about to take place, Authorities are bracing once again for the same kind of thing to go on this spring and this summer. And already one person has been killed in an area of Minneapolis in which protesters have roped it off or blocked it off somehow, and they've called it an autonomous zone. And in Portland and Antifa, it's at it again. And they're again trying to burn down the courthouse. And as Portland reporter Jason Rance puts it, Again, they're causing the traditional amount of chaos that they do. Chaos manifests itself in many other ways also in our culture. It's not just the rioting and the looting that we've seen during this past year. A huge amount of art that's being showcased in museums is nothing but a display of chaos. And a lot of the music that's being composed in the 20th and the 21st centuries, even in the classical world of music, it's pure chaos. And in the classical world, even, there is what's now called chaos melody theory. You can read it and study it on, on, online if you want. I'm per, not particularly interested in figuring out all the details, but that's out there. And it, it's, it's emblematic, you see, of the chaotic society that we're now living in. And against this backdrop, and it's exceedingly refreshing, though, to read in the book of Genesis a description of the way that our creator brought order out of chaos. Verse 2 describes the original condition of the earth as being without form and void. In Job 12.24 and in Psalm 107.40, the word that's translated without form here in Genesis it's translated chaos or a trackless waste. And the word describes a condition that's completely inhospitable for life. It was a chaotic mix of water and mud and darkness was on the face of the deep, the, the Bible says here. And therefore it was void. It was empty. 
a place completely incapable of sustaining life. In a planet of total chaos and complete darkness, there could be no light. And the rest of the chapter tells us about what God did then to remedy this situation. Andrew Fuller exclaims, See how carefully our Heavenly Father was to build us a habitation before he gave us a being. You see what he's saying? He's shaping all of this, taking the chaos and making it orderly. And he does this to prepare a place for you and me. And he goes on to say, nor is this the only instance of the kind. Our Redeemer has acted on the same principle in going before to prepare a place for us. Now from verse 3 on in Genesis chapter 1, God tells us then how he began to prepare a place for mankind. And in our last sermon, we looked at what God did for us on day one. And just to remind you, day one is covered in verses three through five, and it speaks about the creation of light. And in the first place, in those verses, we have a divine proclamation. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in our last sermon, we paid a special attention to the parallels between this light that was first shed upon the earth and the light that takes place in the new creation, the creation that takes place in the new birth. And this proclamation brought about a work that was a needful work. The first requirement for for physical life is light. And it was also an early work. It was on the very first day, not the second, not the third or fourth day. And likewise, in salvation, the very first thing that God begins to do is shed light into our hearts to show us our sin and to show us who Christ is. We also noted about this proclamation that it was a divine work, a spoken work, an instantaneous work, and an irresistible work. And then we noted that this divine proclamation was followed, secondly, by a divine observation. In the new creation, as well as in the old creation, God looks at his workmanship. He looks at it with interest and with pleasure. And this divine observation, thirdly, was then followed by divine approbation or approval. In verse 4, we read, And God saw the light, that it was good. The greatest of all artists, even our God, He stops to admire his handiwork, and he sees that it's good. He's pleased. It's not yet the finished product, but he's pleased at the change that has taken place. And in what way is it good, in particular, in both the old and the new creations? The light that's imparted is good because of its source. It came from God, a good God. It's good because of its likeness. God is light. It's good because of its glory. In every way, it glorifies him. And then there were a couple points that we did not have time to get to in our last sermon. And so still thinking before we move on here to the next day, I want you to notice with me in the fourth place about this creation of light on the first day, that there was after this approbation, a divine separation. This is an important point because it's something that's repeated several times in this account. There's a separation that takes place on more than one occasion. And so we read at the end of verse 4, And God divided, or God separated, the light from the darkness. 
Now it appears that even though God made the light, there was still darkness in the world somehow. And we don't know exactly what this means. We don't know precisely what it means that God divided the light from the darkness. Perhaps this means that on one side of the earth there was light. The sun had not yet been created, but God uh, was allowing light to shine on one side of the earth. And as the earth spun on its axis, perhaps it went into darkness just like it does even now. We don't know. But we're simply not told how this took place. But whatever the case, the theme of separation between darkness and light This plays a significant role in the creation account. And the word that's translated divided, he divided between the light and the darkness, it's used five times in this chapter. And so we're going to have more to say about this as we come to this word again and again as we study the rest of this chapter. Now the word, it does not mean divide in the sense of cutting into two. That's not the picture. But it's rather to assign a separate place to each each thing. And so light was given its place and darkness was given its place. And in the new creation, the separation that takes place is not physical in nature. It's moral in nature. You and I were born living in darkness. And there was a separation, therefore, that was, that was brought about by the new creation. Right away a struggle begins to take place between what we are now as new creatures in Christ and the remnants of what we once were. There's a struggle between light and darkness in our souls. And even in our minds, which are now light in the Lord, remnants of the former darkness still cloud our minds. And yet, because the divine light is linked to the word of God, we read it and more and more our souls are, and our minds are are saturated with the light, you see, of God's truth. And the more this takes place, the more of the light of God's word will flood our souls. And in a similar way, there is sure to be a separation, not only in our own hearts, but there's a separation between the Christian and those that are still in darkness. Previously, our thinking was just like everybody else around us. Those that are in darkness, they clamor for the right to kill their own unborn babies. And they they think this is a way to further female equality. And they can't abide the thought, you see, of a God that would have something to say about what goes on in the bedroom. And a division, therefore, between those that are children of light and those that are children of darkness, it takes place. And it takes place about this issue, takes place about many other issues, A sword even enters into Christian families where there are some that are not yet believers. A painful division takes place. A separation takes place between light and darkness. And then after this divine separation, there is in the fifth place a divine nomination. And so we read, and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Verse 5. Now, when we use the word nomination, we're not using it in the same way that, you know, you nominate somebody to be president or this or that. Uh, We're talking about giving a name to something. And giving names is a recurring theme in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, we read of God naming things. And in chapter 2, we read of Adam naming the animals. In the ancient world, names were highly significant. In the 
James McKeown, vice principal of the Belfast Bible College, Ireland, he explains the significance of this. Names were an essential corollary of existence. To have no name was the equivalent of non-existence. Sarna, he's referring to a, another scholar, he refers to an Egyptian text that describes the period before creation as the time when, quote, no name of anything had yet been named. So there was non-existence, and so there was no name. Those two things went together. And God gives names to the day in this chapter. He gives the names to night, to the earth, to the sky, and to the sea. And the com combination of this twofold process, you see, of creating and then of naming, this demonstrates that God is unrivaled in his ultimate authority over everything that he has made. Now, three things are emphasized in God's giving names to things. And one I've already hinted at, there is jurisdiction that's indicated. Jurisdiction means a judicial authority over something. As we just noticed, in ancient times, naming something was an expression of authority of the thing or the person over the thing that's just been named. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 34, we read that after King Josiah was killed in a battle with the Egyptians, we read this, that the Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in place of his father, Josiah, and changed his name to, to Jehoiakim. You see the significance of that? He sets up the son as king, but to show him that son is not independent now. He's now under authority. He changes his name. In Genesis 1 and verse 5, God names the day. He names the night. Later on, he calls the expanse heaven. He calls the dry land earth. And he gathers the waters, and he calls that the seas. Now, the pagans, they thought in terms of a sky god, of a sea god, of an earth god. They had all these little gods that managed their different territories, you see, in the universe. And the book of Genesis shows right off the bat that all of these creations, you see, they are the subjects and under the authority of the one God that made them all. They're not little gods. They're creations made by the one and true God who has authority over them. And a name also indicates identification. God's naming the light day and the darkness night. This reflects the ancient idea that objects are inextricably bound to the spoken word. There's a relationship between the thing named and the name that's been given to it. There's, there's, there's a significance to the name, in other words. Now, there are many people that we name our children a pretty-sounding name that we just have liked. It's just been a nice name that we like. And there's nothing wrong with that. But back in ancient times, many believed that an object took its identity from its name. The Hebrews, they frequently gave names that fit perhaps an individual's appearance, but also sometimes its character or what they hoped the character would be. Genesis 3.20, we read that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So there's a relationship between the fact that she's the mother of all living and her name Eve. In chapter 25 and verse 25, we read concerning Isaac and Rebekah's son Esau, 
And he came out, you know, remember there was Jacob and Esau, they were twins, but Esau came out of his mother's womb first. And we read that the first came out red, and he was a, like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy. And I'm not talking about hairy, H-A-R-R-Y, but H-A-I-R-Y, full of hairs. And so his name indicated that he was a hairy young boy even at that age. And so there's identification. But then there's also discrimination. This is a very important aspect of this subject. The names given to day and to night, to earth and to seas, these draw contrasts. Now you and I, we ought to reflect God in this. It's a blessed work of grace that teaches us to call things by their right names. By the very words that they use, God's people distinguish between good and evil. And that which is darkness can't be called light. That which is light can't be called darkness. An unborn baby that's just been torn apart by forceps and ripped out of its mother's womb, this can't be called fetal tissue. God's people have a different name for it. They call it a baby. Or better yet, they call it a little child made in the image of God. The world calls that awful act the right to choose, or a woman's right to do what she wants with her own body. But it refuses to recognize that she has no right to kill another body, her baby's body. Now, to promote so-called inclusive language, for instance, in our generation, a private school recently in Manhattan now insists that students stop using the name mom and dad or parents. Instead, they're supposed to speak of grown-ups, or folks, or guardians. So they're shifting the names of things, and this has significance. It has an impact on the way people think, you see. Now, when Christians graciously teach what the Bible says about homosexuality, the world calls it hate speech, no matter how gracious they are. And they call those that teach the Bible on this matter bigots. But when the world uses all manner of hateful language and rhetoric about Christians, Well, that's perfectly appropriate, you see. Well, as believers, though, you and I, we are to learn to call things what they are. And it's easy to call things out there what they are, comparatively. It's a hard thing to call our own sin what it is. That's the difficult thing. That's where it comes close to home. In one of his sermons, Spurgeon relates, I remember hearing of a good man, I believe he was such, who fell into drunkenness on one occasion. And he was excommunicated from the church fellowship, but afterwards became very penitent. And he went about the streets like a man who really should die of grief and was ashamed because of his sin. He could not find peace. And a dear brother who knew something of this man, he took him aside one day and he said, Dear brother, Have you made a full confession of your sin before God? And he thought he had. And so his faithful brother said, Well, now it's a hard thing for me to ask right now. But I'd like you to, I'd like to hear you confess this sin to the Lord. And so he began to pray. But when he came to the act of confessing what he had done, he said, Lord, you know that I have indulged my appetites. And so he finished his prayer. And he didn't feel a bit better. It was just the same. He was miserable. Now, says his friend, my dear brother, 
You had it better unveil your whole sin and hide nothing. Call it what it is, in other words. So the man prayed again. Lord, you know, I got drunk. And that was the moment, you see, when he was finally willing to call it what it was. That was the moment, you see, when God gave him peace. The whole thing came out. The darkness was called night. And he stopped beating around the bush, you see. He got it out. He confessed it to the Lord. And even so, the Lord waits until you and I call sin by its proper names when we confess it to the Lord. Now, at the end of verse 5, the account of the first day ends with these words. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, here I want to correct something that I said in an earlier sermon. And... uh, I make mistakes and have to learn and uh, hopefully uh, correct them when I uh, relearn something. I was mistaken when I said that the mention of the evening first and then of the morning, that this was an expression of the way that the Hebrews counted the next day as beginning at sundown. And having read further on this and having considered further about this matter, I don't believe that the first day started with evening and that the morning was the second half of the day, I don't believe that this is the way it was. Evening, I believe, is mentioned first, not because that's when it started, but evening is mentioned first as the first period because that's the first period of light, and that's when it comes to the end. And then the second half of the day is at nighttime, and when that half comes to an end, then it's the morning. And that's the way that This was being accounted here, and I believe that's more an accurate interpretation. We find the Old Testament speaking this way in other places. For instance, in Judges 6.38 and 21.4, the new day is spoken of as if it began the next morning. In Genesis 19.33-34, Lot's daughters, they seek to preserve their father's lineage by sleeping with him. And so we read they made their father drunk that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It had happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Do you see what they're saying? They, I did this last night, but then the next day, when it began the morning, that's the beginning of the next day. Then she says, this is what you're to do tonight when, uh, when, when, you go to, when he goes to bed. And so in Genesis 1, I believe that the statement at the end of each day is this, the statement, so the evening and the morning were the first day. This divides the day into two portions. The first portion ends at evening, and the second portion ends at sunrise the next morning. So day one, it began with the entrance of light, and it ended with the departure of darkness. And in the rest of the Old Testament, in narrative passages, the Bible makes it very evident that whenever a clear reference is being made to a relationship between one day and the next day, it's precisely at sunrise that the next day begins. That's the way they thought of their days and their nights. They didn't think about midnight. Uh, They didn't have watches like you and I have. And counting days in this way was the same as the method, for instance, that the Egyptians used. And that's what the Israelites would have learned as they were for 400 years, you remember, in the land of Egypt. 
And among the Israelites, it was only with reference to religious feasts. And it was with reference to religious festivals that the day was considered to begin the night before. And perhaps this was to emphasize preparation for the day that was to follow. And so they prepared for the Sabbath day. They prepared for the Passover, etc. And here I want to mention another detail. And I, I'm reluctant to get in the weeds, as, as some of you might think, but one of you actually asked me about this, and so I've had to research it a little bit, and I want to give an answer. And here's the issue. The first day in Genesis 1, it has a cardinal number. There's a difference between cardinal numbers and ordinal numbers. A cardinal number is 1, 2, 3, 4. That's a cardinal number. And, and so in the original, it's Yom Echad, day one. That's a literal translation. The others, after the first day, they have ordinal numbers. We use, for instance, an ordinal number when we, when we speak about a race that takes place. Who came in first? Who came in second? Who came in third? Those are ordinal numbers. And that's what we have from day two and on. But the first day is a cardinal number, day one. And the, interestingly, the New American Standard makes this distinction. And there was evening and there was morning one day, or day one. Now, I don't believe that we can or should read too much into this distinction. At the end of the first day, there was no second day. There was no third day yet. It was only the first day. And so it simply says one day or day one. And it's telling us what, what was comprised of that, what comprised that day. It was the period that ended at at evening, and then it was the period that ended at night. Those two together made day one or one day. So in other words, it tells us that there was these two periods and those periods comprised one day. But we mustn't get too tied up in these details that I just mentioned. I wanted to answer that question. I thought maybe some of the rest of you at some point may have it brought to your attention. Especially there are people out there that want to come up with all kinds of highfalutin theories and kind of spin all kinds of uh, doctrines out of something that I think uh, is misplaced. But we need to forget, not forget the great stress that's being placed on light is the very first thing that God, God imparted when he began to form the earth. That's the great stress of this first account of the first day. We mustn't forget what we read in 1 John 1 verses 5 through 7. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The literal light, it shows us the literal way. It it's a light on our path at, at nighttime. And God, as light, he does the same for us. He provides the revelation that we need to live and to speak and to act in, in, in the right way. He shows us the path that we should go on. And for the man that Spurgeon spoke about, that I told you about, this man that had gotten drunk, Walking in the light, it meant coming to the place where he brought his sin to the light of God's word and called it what it is. He stopped using euphemisms. That's what you and I need to do. Stop hiding it by calling it something different. 
And so it will be for you and me. And if you and I habitually seek the cloak of darkness, if that's what our pattern is, we're not Christians. You're not a Christian. If you live in darkness and you keep on covering it up and you don't confess it, he who covers his sin shall not prosper, God says. But whoso confesses and forsakes it, he will have mercy. Well, this is what we wanted to say about day one, and now we want to come to day two, the creation of the expanse, or the, and it's given a very significant word in Hebrew, the rakia, and this is described in verses six through eight. Now, the second and the third days of creation, they're both marked by the work of separation. Just like the first day, there was separation between light and darkness, there's separation on the second day and on the third day. And on the second day, there was the expanse, there was the waters that were divided, there was a separation. And then on the third days, there's separation between land and water, between land and, and, and sea. It appears that after the first day that there was still no atmosphere in which anything could live or breathe. The earth was still an undifferentiated watery mass on its surface. Perhaps it was, you could say it was somewhat like being in a room full of hot, muddy water right up to the ceiling, pulsating like a, like a moving blob, you see. And in it, there was no breathing space. All of the material elements were there, and the energy was there. But it was necessary that these elements, you see, would be separated if life was going to ever exist upon earth. To use the old Greek concept, it was still chaos, not a cosmos. And at first it was a dark chaos, and that was remedied on day one. Light began to shine on that chaos, but still it was chaos. A separation was required, an order was needed to be brought about in that chaos. And as with day one, day two began again with a divine proclamation. We read in verse 6, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Now on day two, by the creative power that issued forth by the very speaking of God's word, God separated this uninhabitable soup that it was on the surface of the earth. He separated, you see, this which was comprised perhaps of gases and liquid and mud and energetic elements, an atmosphere that no, no plant could live or breathe in, no animal could, could, could live on. And God began to separate what was there, the various waters. And the Hebrew word is used, it's the, the word that's translated firmament, he separated the waters from the, uh, one body of waters and then another body of waters he called the firmament. And that translation is a translation of the Hebrew word rakia, which comes from a Hebrew verb form that means to strike or to stamp. And it's the same root that comes from a word in Exodus 39.4. And they did beat the gold into thin plates. The, the, verb is, the verb form is there. They beat it out. They beat it and it stretched out. That's the picture of being, something being stretched out, like gold can be made into a thin gold a leaf and cover things, for instance. And in that place, the word depicts hammering out gold into a thin sheet, as I just said. But taking this image literally, some have supposed that the Hebrews thought of the rakia 
as some kind of a literal sheet that was out there. Maybe some of you were foolish enough, as, as I was for a little while, to watch a few episodes of that Under the Dome the story that was a science fiction story that they had on television some time ago. And uh, it, it, it's a crazy story. It just, it just, you, too, I, I, you, couldn't, you, can't, you couldn't start thinking scientifically about it all. You just had to kind of believe this fiction here that it could take place. But they had this idea, you see, the Hebrews, that this, they thought about them, some kind of a solid thing that's out there, some kind of a dome or some kind of an arch that held up the waters that were above it. And uh, this raises the question, then, did the author of these words, did Moses or whoever wrote these words, is this what he meant? Did he mean a solid dome that would hold the sky up there to keep it from falling? In the old translation, firmament, it gives this impression. It has the word firm in it, doesn't it? Firmament. And it gives the impression of something being firm or solid. In the Bible in basic English, that's one of these modern translations, it literally translates the word as a solid arch. Let there be a solid arch stretching over the waters. And some have even gone so far as to say that the biblical Hebrews they, they adopted this idea from the pagans, and they believed in a three-decker earth. And it was all flat, and there were some huge mountains that were the pillars, and then there was this arch that kind of rested on those mountains, and this is the way the Hebrews thought. They, were just, they had this kind of myth that there was their idea, and in this primitive way, this is the way Moses wrote it down, but we know better now. And so that's the way they, uh, some have interpreted this, this passage. And one scholar even goes so far as to say that they believed, uh, believed that these literal things were, were, these pillars were mountains, as I just said. But this, is, this isn't the teaching of Scripture. Job 26, 7, what is probably the oldest book in the Bible, it says that God hangs the earth on nothing. It obviously means that the writer of that, that passage, he communicated the idea that it's out in space. It's hanging, not, it's not some kind of a flat thing resting on on some flat surface, and then there are mountains holding it up, and so forth. And it's likely that this idea of a solid or firm structure, it gained acceptance, first of all, through the Greek translation of the Old Testament that's known as the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it translates this word with the word stereo, to make or be firm or solid. That's the Greek, what the Greek word means. And then when Jerome translated from the Greek, and I think he must, he must have known Greek better than Hebrew, because it seems he took this from the Greek, and he put it into the Latin Vulgate translation, and, that's, and, and he used this word, firmamentum. And so when the, the translators of the King James Version came along, they saw this word firmamentum, and they just kind of put it into English, firmament. That's where we get this word firmament. But neither the Greek Septuagint nor the Latin Vulgate are accurate renderings of the Hebrew word rakia. The word rakia simply refers to something that's flexible or something that can be stretched out. And the emphasis of the Hebrew, it's not on the material itself, but it's the act of spreading out. It's the condition of being expanded. And the Greek words stereo and the Latin word for momentum they refer to something hard, something solid. So the translation, I think, that's given in the New American Standard and in the English Standard, 
And interestingly, in the modern Jewish Tanakh, these are Jewish translators, the translation is expanse. And I think that's a much better translation than the translation firmament. It's much less misleading. And this is confirmed by many Old Testament passages that refer to God having stretched out or having spread out the heavens using the same verb, the same word family. And this comes from the same root as the word rakia. And other passages using the word nata, meaning to extend or stretch out and sometimes bode. Again, these various passages, they communicate this idea, not of something solid, but of something that's stretched out and expands. Job 9.8, who alone stretched out the heavens. Job 38.37.18, can you like him spread out the, the skies? Psalm 104.2, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Isaiah 40.22, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Ezekiel 1.22, the likeness of an expanse or the likeness of a rakia spread out. Many other texts I could give you to, that confirm the same pattern. And so I believe that's the idea that's communicated here. It's an expanse that stretched out this atmosphere that God made. And this brings another question to our attention. And I think it's an important question, helpful for us to understand what we find here. And it's the question that is asked, was this rakia, was this expanse, was this a vapor canopy? Now, the idea was popularized by John Wickham and by Henry Morris. They both contributed immensely to the defense of the biblical doctrine of creation. And together, these two men, they wrote a book, a major book in 1961. It's entitled The Genesis Flood. And interestingly, Dr. Wickham came to Pillsbury Baptist Bible College, where I went and graduated. And he lectured there, so I was able to get my copy of the book uh, autographed by the author. And the theory that's proposed in this book is that prior to the flood, there was this vapor canopy that surrounded the earth, and it extended far into space, and it held a whole lot of water, more than the clouds now do. This is the theory. And uh, this canopy it provided, so the theory goes, an even climate around the earth, and that's why you find mammoths, you know, way up in the north, they, they uh, seem to live up there in, in areas where they couldn't anymore. And also these, this canopy supposedly protected the creatures from harmful UV rays, and all of this allowed for the long lives that were lived before the flood. And this is a theory that had a lot of appeal to me. It made a lot of sense to me as I heard about it. And this canopy, it contained an immense amount of water. And the flood took place when they, the water, the fountains of the deep were opened up. But then also from the firmament, they were opened up and they were unleashed upon the earth. But recent creation scholars and scientists Almost all of them nowadays, they have raised many questions about this theory. I'm not talking about people that don't believe the Bible. I'm talking about defenders of the Bible. In a particular, Robert Whitelaw and, and Walter Brown, they've raised some serious scientific difficulties with this theory. And Brown summarizes these difficulties, first of all, as a heat problem. A large vapor canopy, it would so increase the heat that it would roast everything that's alive below. And secondly, the light problem. How would you see the stars that are talked about here in uh, Genesis chapter 1? How would you see 
the, the signs and the seasons that are mentioned here. And the sunlight, it couldn't have reached, you see, with enough light to support also the, the tropical plants that need a lot of direct sunlight. And so there's a light problem. And then there's a pressure problem. Vapor canopy holding more than 40 feet of water. This would increase at such high pressure at its base that its temperature, they, they, they theorize it would, have, it would have made the earth 220 degrees Fahrenheit. And then there's a support problem. Neither a vapor nor a liquid or ice canopy could have physically survived the many centuries between creation and the flood. And then finally, the ultraviolet problem. Because a canopy surrounding the atmosphere, this wouldn't have really protected from the ultraviolet light, which would have uh, disassociated water into hydrogen and oxygen, and it would therefore have destroyed the canopy. And so these are some of the problems that scientists that are creationists have raised about this theory of a canopy surrounding the earth. It doesn't mean that they don't believe that there might have been something different about the atmosphere, why people lived longer at that time, and uh, why the dinosaurs uh, died out and so forth. And later on, when we get to the Genesis, Genesis flood, we'll discuss the proposed mechanisms as to how the great catastrophe, how there could be so much water that would accomplish the flood that's described in Genesis 6 through 9. And in brief, I think, the best explanation seems to relate to the, an unprecedented shift in tectonic plates. And uh, you can see, as you look at the sides of mountains, that they're just pushed up in thousands of feet into the air at different angles and so forth. There was a tremendous upheaval that took place in the history of our planet. Well, after this divine proclamation, there was, secondly here on this day, a divine separation. And we find this in verse 7. And thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament or under the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And these words, they inform us that God's sovereign fiat, his creative decree, it came to pass. And here again is a second in a series of separations. On the first day, God divided the light from the darkness, and here is the separations from the waters above and the waters below. On the third day, we're not going to get to it today, but there's a separation between the land and the sea. And Psalm 104, 3 celebrates what took place on this day in poetic form. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariots, who walks on the wings of the wind. And the verse 13 adds, he waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. And after this divine proclamation and divine separation, there was a divine nomination again on this day as it was on the first day. Verse 8 tells us that God called the firmament, recalled the expanse, heaven. Again, by naming heaven, he reiterates his authority over this expanse. And the same is true on the third day of the land and the sea. And so the pagans, they thought in terms of a sky god, a sea god, an earth god. But Genesis tells us that these are all creations of the one true God, and therefore they are subject to that God. But if a man rebels against this creator God, what God made to be a habitation for us. It, it's turned against us. Job 38 tells us that in the heavens God also has the treasury of hail. 
He has reserved the time for trouble for the day of battle and war. And so Matthew Henry says, oh, what a great God he is who has provided for the comfort of all that serve him and the confusion of all that hate him. It is good having him as our friend and bad having him as our enemy. He makes the firmament, you see, to care for his people. That was his first intention. But when man rebels, you see, God can also use it as hail, as thunder, and many other ways as a means of judgment. And then the record of the second day, it closes again with the words of the evening and the morning or the second day. And again and again, we have this pattern. This is a repeated refrain that comes throughout this chapter. Just as there is this separation between the chaotic waters above and, and, and to waters that are above and the, and the waters below, it all manifests the fact that God is a God of order. And all of us, right from the very time we were children, we, we loved patterns. We made patterns in the sand. If, if we weren't very talented, we made snow angels in the snow. We love to make different patterns, you see. Snowflakes, we admired uh, what we could see of them under the microscope. And science be- it can only exist because there is this order, because there are these patterns. And when we as believers consider the order that is in God's creation, we're filled with wonder and with praise. It's, it's so orderly. It's so patterned. And in the same way, this chapter that describes it shows that delight, you see, that God has in, por- in order and in patterns, and in regularity. Well, as we seek to apply what I've laid out before you concerning this second day, the main takeaway that I want to leave you with, it pertains to this very feature of God's work, the feature of order. Even after the fall, after considerable chaos was reintroduced into the world, God is still concerned with order. Even in our secular concerns, we see this. Order, it it goes with prosperity, things going well. The whole enterprise of science, it rests on the assumption of an ordered world. It's not chaotic. There's some regularity in which that can be examined, you see, and and scientific theories, you see, can be uh, tested. Laws of physics are consistent. Patterns can be discovered. There'd be no science, you see, without an ordered world. Order is also essential to society. As Southey puts it, order is the sanity of the mind, the health of the body, the peace of the city, the security of the state. In human productions, human activities, anything that is done well is done in an orderly way. Well-ordered stones are put together in architecture, Well-ordered social regulations make for peace and tranquility in a nation. Well-ordered ideas are essential, you see, to a logical argument. Well-structured sentences are essential to a pleasing uh, thing to read, a good writing. But on the other hand, there's nothing that is more likely to unmake and to ruin it all like disorder. It's the opposite. This is one of the reasons why as we see this disorder taking place more and more in our land, we're we're filled with dismay about it. Anarchists who only know how to destroy and convince these these people have never built anything in their lives. They've never built anything worthwhile, and they're roaming our streets, destroying and plundering everything they can get their hands on. 
and our foolish politicians are bailing them out and making it possible for them to go right back out and do the same thing. And with this kind of sin, a disorder runs rampant through the land. Destruction and misery is the result. Witness the terrible destruction and disorder that took place throughout Europe in World War II. I love to watch the History Channel, some things about World War II and other things that can be learned. And it's a sad thing, though, to see these cities just leveled to the ground, basically. This, the disorder, the chaos, it's awful to look at. And no doubt, there were some well-meaning people that invaded our capital on January 6th. But what did their mayhem accomplish? Even if they thought they were going to further the agenda of making America great again, they were sorely deluded. They couldn't have done something that would have hindered the the populist message that, that our former president wanted to get out. And whether you're from the right or whether you're from the left, you see, there's nothing that destroys a society faster than resorting to disorder and mayhem and chaos. The same holds true for the church. The church at Corinth, there were people that wanted to parade their gifts. They were convinced that they had something that was better than the other people. And so they were shouting over each other. They were all speaking in tongues at the same time. And this is why Paul had to tell them about the necessity of speaking in turn. And if somebody speaks, there has to be an interpreter. And otherwise, everybody, if everybody's babbling in unknown tongues, he says, Each of you speaking over one another. When unbelievers come in, he says, they're going to say you're mad. They're going to see the chaos. And they're going to be hindered from believing the gospel. And so having heard of this disorder, Paul reproves him. He says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And again, he had to admonish them, saying, let all things be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. And 40. And by way of contrast, he was able to write to the Colossians, Though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. He knew that they had an orderly church. It wasn't a chaotic church. They had their officers in place, and people weren't just at, at each other's throats. So there was an orderly life to their church. Bless God, I think that for the most part, the history of our church, there's been order. And people have wanted order. They haven't wanted to disrupt order. But we have to be careful always. Because sin will make us want to do this or that. At the end, when it results in disorder and chaos, it is something that is very destructive of the kingdom of God. But perhaps I'm speaking to somebody today. And the concern that I have for you is not that You're not very good at making things in an orderly way, creative and so forth. It's not that uh, my biggest concern for you is not that uh, we do the exact right thing in an orderly way as a church. My concern for you is that your life is filled with disorder. That's, That's characteristic of your life. And sin, it leads us to view everything you see with a wrong sense of priorities. It leads us to turn things upside down. And the inevitable result is a disordered life. And in some cases, this can manifest itself in a disordered house. Everything is always in a mess. It's all disordered. It's all chaotic. But you could be a great housekeeper, my friend, and still have a life that's in full of disarray. Your life, perhaps, is tattered with broken relationships. 
Your home is anything but a place of tranquility and of peace. Your finances are a huge mess. And sin has introduced, you see, disarray and disorder into your life. And I could do no better than close by pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the only one who was able to bring order into your life. He was the creator. He created all things. He brought about this order in the ancient world. And he, did, he does the same thing today. And if your life is out of control, there's hope, therefore, my friend. This same Savior, he went to that demon that had a, a thousand or whoever, how I many he was, legion of demons in him. A chaotic life, if ever there was one. A man that was living in tombs and couldn't be contained. He cast those demons out. He gave that man a right mind. He brought order. He brought peace once again to that man's heart that was full of chaos and darkness. And again, you remember how he was able to still the raging sea. The chaos that appears you see on the surface of the water. He says, peace, be still. And as you confess your sins, as you entrust your life unto this Lord Jesus, he can take you from all of that which has brought such disorder into your heart and into your life. And he can give you a new life. A life that is ordered, a life that is peaceful, a life that glorifies God, that brings glory to this God who loves order, loves things to be done in an orderly manner. May the Lord help you and me as Christians, may the Lord help you if you're not a Christian, to learn this and to be transformed by this truth, and especially by this Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us this remarkable account of how you brought order out of chaos. And we do thank you, Lord, that you were able yet to do that. And even though more and more chaos has descended upon our land, we do believe that you were able to transform this land once again. We do believe that you were able to cause gospel light once again to begin to shine. And where it shines, to begin to transform people's thinking so that they are no longer and rebelling against you. And we pray for any young person, any older person that is here in this room or listening online. Oh, Lord, we do plead with you that in any case where there is this disorder that needs to be dealt with, that you, by your sovereign mercy, would, would do this. And just as you commanded and you brought about order, you brought about a separation, we pray, Lord, that you would do the same in the hearts and the lives of the people that are hearing what we say today. Have mercy upon us, we do pray, for we prayed in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.